Hi, I'm Brad. And I'm Alyssa. And welcome to Strange History, the podcast where we discuss, you guessed it, Strange History. It's my line. Uh, recently, the lock to my front door broke during a snowstorm that we had. So if anyone has any five-inch screws they'd be, willing, they'd be willing to share, just go ahead and kind of send them my way. Like, it's bad. People and animals have just been finding their way onto my sun porch, and it's getting extremely stressful. Also, early apologies for the state of my voice. I've been rather sick the past few days, and I still kind of feel like death. We're trying to take special care with our event of the day with current events, and that's getting kind of hard. We're at a weird place in the year, and there are lots and lots of events to cover, but since most of them involve Russia, that's made it very hard to actually write the event of the day. On today's episode, we will be... And I'm Harmon. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm host of the Cryptid Code podcast, where I meet with my two co-hosts, discuss cryptids, aliens, and generally anything spooky. However, uh, Brad's lock is broken. You really need to get that fixed. So I'm going to sneak in while he wasn't looking. So... Being a host of a podcast dedicated to the creature somewhere between science and superstition, I felt like I should present a case that kind of unites our two interests, history and cryptids. And I have just the thing for you guys today. So let me ask, what does the French Revolution, true crime news coverage, and children with spears all have in common? They're all the same thing. In some cases. But to find out, we'll be, we'll have to begin our story in pre-revolution France. Episode 19. Cryptid Coded. The year was 1764, and France was in what one could generously call a bit of trouble. The Seven Years' War had just ended in disaster for the waning French Empire having lost to their eternal enemies, the British. Wars, you may know, are pretty expensive. Failed wars, even more so. Especially at the cost of defeat, was uh, surrendering all their North American colonies to the English or their Spanish allies. This sent the economy into a spiral as the nation struggled to pay off its war debts, as well as adjust the loss of so many raw resources, such as beaver, furs, and timber. Of course, the people hit the hardest by this economic turmoil were the poor, not helped by the fact that one of the methods of paying for the war, the, oh God, I didn't look up pronunciation, Vegetimi was a flow. Vegemite? (laughs) Alyssa, help. I don't speak French, girl, I speak Spanish. It's both romantic languages. Vintien? Vintien was a flat income tax of 4% that was meant to be paid equally by everyone. However, the clergy managed to win full exemption from the tax, while nobility and aristocrats negotiated lower rates. Thus, it was left to the lower classes to pay the most and take the brunt of the burden. Fun fact, gonna interrupt you real quick. Did you know the French political society was broken down into three different orders? I learned this in history just a few days ago, and I'm going to just interrupt with a super embarrassing story because I honestly wanted to just, you know, commit the unalive afterwards. You just want to talk about yourself. I do. So, I was not paying attention in class. I will be straight up and honest. I was texting, playing on Snapchat, and my professor goes, can anyone tell me what the First Order is? So naturally, I'm like, oh yeah, that's like Kylo Ren and, you know, the Imperial Remnant. (laughs) 
and he's standing up there lecturing and he looks down at me and he's like are you fucking serious <laughs> if he could have forced choked you he would if he could have literally choked me if he would have if that man was adam driver you'd be dead if that man was adam driver i'd fail that class consistently just to see adam driver oh horny so thank you for that for that <laughs> That, yeah. Also, uh, the, the first order is actually the, the clergy, so you are correct in that. The second order is French aristocracy, nobility, and officers in the military. The first and second orders can intermingle, so you can be a clergyman who is also a noble. The third order is everybody else who is not part of the clergy and not French nobility. Fun fact. The king himself falls into the third order as part of everybody else because he is not considered an actual noble by French society politics. Huh. Imagine being the sun king and, like, you're still a scrub. Yeah. Yeah. My contribution is that since we're talking about France, I'm drinking a LaCroix or LaCroix. Um, if you care about pronunciation, which is named after the river over there somewhere. I don't know. Or cracks. <laughs> now, these hard times rippled all throughout France, particularly in the rural southern region of Javoudon. Get used to the accent, people. It is here that our tale truly begins, as a young woman whose name was lost to time resided to the fields outside of Lagon, and she watched over her family's herd of cattle. Such a task was a common chore for children her age, so it was not unusual for her to be out in the fields for long stretches of time, all by herself. Yet, as she went about grazing the cows, she was startled to hear a rustling in the bush. And suddenly, a creature came bounding out of the forest. It was a mass of fur and fang, completely ignoring the cattle as it barrels with terrifying speed directly towards the young girl. Thankfully, several bulls charged the creature and actually managed to chase it off back into the woods. Terrified, the girl ran back home and told her family what happened. When asked to describe her attacker, all she, all she, all she could say was, quote, like a wolf, yet not a wolf. I don't know why, but when you mentioned the creature running at like a terrifying speed, I just imagined it, Naruto, running. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrified. Maybe I'm showing my age. You're going to be like, and I just imagined Shia LaBeouf. Actual cannibal Shia LaBeouf. This is serious. <laughs> no, but now, now all I can see is an anthropomorphic wolf creature, Naruto, running, yelling, Sasuke! And I just want to kill myself again. Though they're sympathetic. <laughs> Many of the townspeople dismissed her story entirely. Wolf attacks were unfortunately very common at the time, prompting most to conclude that she had simply seen a regular wolf, but fear caused her to exaggerate its size. Yet, this was just the beginning of what would become a reign of terror that dominated Jabudon. And by the end, there would be over 100 deaths. And the people of the world would come to fear a monster known only as the beast of Javudon. Thundercrack. So, have any of you guys heard of the beast before? No. 
Oh, you are in World Street, Sunny. Yeah, I'm not gonna pretend. I don't know anything, so. You do <laughs> know. <laughs> you do know of running. I do. I do. All right. Uh, well, with that awkward icebreaker out of the way, we'll continue. Now, for those unfamiliar, I think it would be appropriate to start with a general description of what the beast looked like. One poster from the period described it as such, quote, reddish brown with dark ridge stripe down the back. Resembles wolf slash hyena, but big as a donkey. Long. Remember when donkey was a unit of measurement? Those were good days. <laughs> Long gaping jaw, six claws, pointy upright ears, and supple furry tail. Mobile like a cat's, nothing else, and can knock you over. Cried more like a horse neighing than a wolf howling. So as you can tell, not a normal creature, and this thing's going to be popping up all over the Jabudong region. Can I partially ruin it? If I said no, you would do it anyway, so go ahead. You know who else was reddish-brown, had reddish-brown fur? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> Tell me. Jacob Black in the movie Twilight. <laughs> it was supposed to match his skin tone. Anyway, this is my final and last episode after that <laughs> comment. Um. Uh, I will be replacing Alyssa. Sorry, everyone. Uh, no more Twilight stuff. Sorry, guys. I mean, I can still do Twilight stuff. I'll just start a Twilight podcast. You could. I could. <laughs> Your entire podcast would just be you connecting it to random things. It's yes. just a yes. moving will be like the title of the episode and you working to connect that movie to Twilight. Mm -hmm. Every podcast episode is like five minutes. <laughs> Sometimes two, depending on. Depending on how easy it is. How easy it is. Now, the last witness was lucky to escape the beast alive, but she was the exception. Soon enough, the beast began to leave a trail of bodies. The, fir the first victim was 14-year-old Jean Boulette, killed on June 30th, as her mutilated body was discovered in the woods surrounding the village of Bouvet. Her priest, one Father Soldier, marked her death as, quote, killed by the ferocious beast, end quote. Few paid much mind to the incident, however, shrugging it off as a tragic but all-too-common case of an isolated child mauled by a wild wolf. However, about a month later on August 6th, six miles away from the town of Sevier, young Marine Heberg was found torn to pieces. A mere two days later, a 15-year-old girl from the village of Mashamajin was killed in a similar manner. The month came to a close with one more fatality as a young boy was found dead outside the village of Les Redes on August 30th. I don't know if you said it in the beginning, if I wasn't paying attention. What year is this? Uh, 1764. Okay, thank you. I was also wondering. Just ignore me, guys. I it's don't know fine. when the French Revolution happened. I know it started July 14th. This, I've worked so hard on this. Pay attention. <laughs> I am! I didn't know if you said a year or not! So, it was becoming hard to write this off as the work of regular wolves, especially as September brought in four more victims. The beast, however, was seemingly growing bolder, moving its attacks closer and closer to town. On September 6th or 8th, accounts vary, a 36-year-old woman was found dead 
outside her cottage in Les Estretes. She was known in her village as a herbalist and uh, was referred to as the village witch. Typically, she would uh, use plants and herbs to create home remedies or folk medicine. While out picking ingredients, it is believed she was chased by the beast. She nearly made it home, but was killed on the steps to her home. She had her hand on the doorknob right before it got her. Wow, that's some uh, scream-level bullshit. Oh, it's going to get worse. Another reason people began to think this was just not a wolf was because even though the beast attacked shepherds, it never seemed to actually attack livestock. It only appeared interested in human prey. Interestingly, victims were typically killed via a slash or bite to their throat or head. You see, sometimes victims would just be bitten, killed, and left there, and it wouldn't actually eat them. It would just wander off. Although in other cases, it would be found mutilated. Eventually, the cases came to the attention of Etienne Lafont, regional manager resigned over Javoudon. Immediately, Lafont set about formulating some kind of defense against this creature. He began reaching out to nobles in Javoudon in order to create a support system capable of organizing some kind of defense against it. Among him, among his allies, was House Marangues. Oh, I'm sorry, French listeners. A noble family that had fallen to disgrace after their patriarch, one Pierre-Charles de la Molette, was humiliated by a coalition of English and German troops at the Battle of Menden in 1759. Over 7,000 French troops were lost, but the most personal casualty was the family's pride. Hoping to restore the house's honor, Pierre's son, Jean-Francesc Charles de la Motte, joined the hunt. The nobles organized what were known as, quote, permanent hunts, where they would lead peasants in large groups to try and track the beast. Sadly, these patrols proved terribly ineffective. Part of this was because French commoners were, <laughs> were banned from owning firearms. The idea of hunting a monster is scary enough. It's even worse when your only means of defense was literally a pole or a stick. Lafont corrected this by passing a temporary policy change, allowing and encouraging non-nobles to get firearms and carry them on them at all times. The next issue, though, was that many flatly just refused to go on hunts unless accompanied by trained hunters. Even when hunts were sent out, the beast deftly evaded them at every turn, all the while the body count kept climbing. One example was a 12-year-old girl on September 28th. There was so little of her left that the only thing left to bury was a single arm. Another account was a woman whose baby was torn from her hands by the beast's jaws, leaving the weeping woman to watch helplessly as the beast disappeared into the woods with her baby. So that 12-year-old only had an arm? Everything else was mush. Also, it didn't eat it. It was like... It Most tore, of it. Tore it up. Oh, it actually didn't eat this one? Yeah. Okay. Uh... The priest actually specified that they couldn't give the 12-year-old, like, final sacraments because there's just nothing left for them to do. I feel like you could do a whole, like, you know, Catholic cross over the arm sort of, sort of deal. And the arm will get into heaven. Back to Catholics. Back to Catholics. <laughs> oh, there's a Catholic in this. Oh, thank, thank God there's another Catholic. We've talked about Catholics every single episode this season. Even when we tried not to. 
Hello, I'm Brad, and this is Catholic History. We talk about, you guessed it, Catholic the church. <laughs> but no, we did an episode based on World War II and an assassination against Hitler, only to find out at some point the Germans actually legitimately believed that the Pope was trying to kill Hitler. Damn. He's a cool Pope. He was he trying to kill Hitler? No. Ah, never mind. <laughs> Now he's just a normal Pope again! <laughs> this might be a hot take. I feel like Popes have gotten less cool in the modern Like, we're not gonna do this. Oh, okay. we're, not, <laughs> we're not coming for a whole church today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's why I had to pause so you can easily I'm, get cut I'm gonna lead to it. <laughs> Finally, Lafont realized that this would not be enough and that drastic action had to be taken. Under his orders, one Captain Jean-Baptiste Duhamel of the Clermont Prince Regiment arrived with a force of 300 French dragoons to hunt the beast. To the French army, this was a golden opportunity to redeem themselves for the, for, for the failure of the Seven Years' War. Meanwhile, the soldiers with their shining helmets, colorful uniforms, and powerful steeds appeared as a godsend to the people of Japidon. Do you imagine how embarrassing it must have been to go from, yeah, we're in a war, now to the only way we can redeem ourselves is by hunting a mythological creature just hoping for the best. Okay, to put this in like a modern sense, imagine like World War II just ended. Germany just surrendered. You're off the boat back from Berlin, and the first thing they say is they hand you a pistol and go, there's a dragon in West Virginia, we need you to take it out. I would just, it's an episode of Pumped. Aspen Kutcher's gonna bust through a wall somewhere. Yep, in 1945. Yeah, 1945. <laughs> it's all a prank, man. You see a hate camera right there on the time machine. Anyway. Perhaps his newfound confidence would explain the swelling number of volunteers who joined the efforts to find the beast. One particular hunt lasted four days straight and had a staggering 20,000 men filling its ranks. At one point, Duhamel commanded the efforts of over 3,000, 30,000 people. Now, that might sound like a lot, but you have to remember the massive amount of land they had to cover. Despite the geographical disadvantage, the hunts did manage to run across the beast in one exciting encounter on October 8th. Duhamel wrote, quote, The beast came out and passed in front of two of the hunters. The first shot, the first shot about ten paces away. It fell instantly and got up immediately. The second hunter shot at the same distance as soon as he saw it get up. It fell again. The two hunters, as well as some peasants, ran on it, believing it dead. It got up again and re-entered the woods, appearing to have an uncertain walk and going slower, though still faster than those who were chasing it. It received another shot in the wood, which, like the first two, did not kill it. It came out of the wood, a hunter shot again about 50 paces away. It fell again, got back up, and went back into the woods again, where they looked for it until nightfall without being able to find it. End quote. So, this wolf is just tanking shots like 50 cents. Was that your joke? No. Oh my god. <laughs> that was improvised. <laughs> Is that joke saying? Yeah, your name. I'll 
Think about it. Hey, feel free to cut it out if you want to. No, I'll allow it. I don't, I don't know if like that's a dramatic thing for 50 Cent. I guess it would be. It um, seems fine. <laughs> I just imagine him in his bedroom crying listening to his favorite <laughs> podcast. He's a strange history fan. <laughs> uh, Duel Mal did get another chance though. He traveled to a village where a woman was attacked by the beast while just outside her home. They discovered her corpse in her garden, missing her head. Dun, dun, dun. Believing the creature still in the area, Duomel and his men scoured the local forest. At one point, Duomel was separated from his men and was pushing through some thick brush. And as he cleared away a branch, his eyes settled on a bundle of fur in front of him. By pure luck, he had managed to stumble upon the beast. He was merely four paces away, yet the beast did not seem to notice him. He seized the opportunity, slowly leveling his rifle. He could feel his heart pounding nervously in his chest as he lined up the shot. Three balls were in his rifle, so he knew if he got one good shot, it would drop this thing for good. As the sights lined on the beast, his victory was at hand. That was until he heard a loud shout and the hurried hooves of hunting horses. His own men had found the monster and charged towards it, ironically ruining Duhamel's chance as the now alert beast sped off into the forest. Desperately, Duhamel gave chase, yet the beast eluded him. Further efforts to find the creature were ruined as a storm had pulled in the following day, washing away whatever tracks remained and made hunting the beast pretty much impossible. Which, can you just imagine the frustration Having it this close, and then your own guys mess it up. I mean, that is how. It's like be the one time that I almost won the lottery. Oh. Duomel was devastated by his failure. To have the beast so neatly in the palm of his hand, only to have it yanked away, it felt like a cruel joke. This humiliation caused Duomel's obsession to deepen. I can picture Duomel pacing around his office like one of those movie detectives, chain-smoking as he looks over the evidence. The Beast is sending him taunting letters like the Zodiac Killer or something. I think of, uh, what's his name, Charlie from Los Angeles, Philadelphia, with the conspiracy <laughs> theory wall, all the yarn everywhere. The true Beast was Pepe Silvio. <laughs> now, not only did the hunts continue, he also employed traps and poison to bait. Frustration eventually turned to desperation as Duomel adopted some unorthodox tactics to hunting the beast. One said tactic was to have his men dress up as women to lure the beast out like RuPaul's to catch a predator. I saw that from over here and I... <laughs> that was the joke. <laughs> That's the one I was proud of. Oh my god. <sighs> On a more morbid note, Duomel also resorted to some pretty drastic measures. Most notably, he banned the, fam the families of victims from burying the remains. He thought the beast would return to finish devouring the corpses and would set an ambush around the body. However, the beast never fell for the trap. All it accomplished was traumatizing family members as they had to leave their loved ones' bodies where they were, decaying out in the open, which, let me remind you, was usually not very far from their house. The woman on our front porch. Duomel even arrested one father for secretly burying the remains of his murdered son. Taking this a step even further, he eventually got upgraded. He eventually upgraded his bait from dead children to still alive children. 
they would send them out in the woods with uh, people secretly watching them, hoping the beast would come for them, and they could set a trap. You really said fuck those kids. Indeed, fuck them kids. Now, the death toll was only growing during all of this. Duhamel was appointed the leader of the hunt by Lafont on October 14th. And by the end of December, the beast had claimed 60 victims. December drew to an end with another notable occurrence as the Bishop of Mende, and the, who was also the Count of Jaboudon, one Gabriel Farland de Odir Salozi Bupier, announced that the beast was in fact punishment from God for their sins and that their only respite would be to pray, pray the wolf away. During this, however, the news of the beast did not remain contained within the lonely forest of Jamoudon. In fact, the beast was becoming a prime headliner in French newspapers. You see, given how disastrous, disastrously foreign affairs were going, the French crown had actually forbidden papers from covering political topics that would reflect badly on the monarch, which was most of them. Thus, journalists had to look inwards to find their stories. This led newspapers to cover domestic affairs, most predominantly crime. Stories of murder, theft, and all kinds of savagery filled the front pages throughout the nation. However, reports of the beast killings were picked up by the popular Courier de Avignon, making the beast of Jaboudon one of the first major examples of a true crime story. The creature's exploits became bestsellers as the courier would go on to publish 98 articles on the topic in just over a year. One story in particular that became extremely popular was that of 10-year-old Jacques Portefax. On January 12th, he and his six friends were tending to their flocks outside the Verret. With talk of the beast lingering over the region, local children followed the age-old adage, safety in numbers. Suddenly, the beast stalked out from the underbrush. The children formed a defensive circle, using long sticks to try and ward the beast off. The monster, however, was relentless and actually managed to snatch the youngest child, one eight-year-old John Verrier. It carried him off into the woods. Understandably, the frightened children wanted to flee, all except Jocks. An amazing display of courage, Jocks actually led the other children in pursuit of the beast. They discovered it in the woods and set upon it with their sticks. Knowing that their weapons couldn't pierce its skin, they focused on hitting its head, eyes, and exposed mouth in an effort to make it release their friend. The noise attracted a nearby man who managed to drive the beast off. Little John Verrier was alive with only minor wounds, so one of the few happy endings you're going to get out of this. The story garnered national attention and made brave Portifax a hero to the people of France. His exploits were so famous to win him an audience with the King of France himself, Louis XV. Impressed with his valor, the king awarded the child a large sum of money and personally paid for his education. He also promised that the issue would be resolved and the beast would be hunted down with the full might of the French monarch. I love that it wasn't just like people in a small French village are having this issue. The king of France was like, are you, are you kidding me? We're, no, yeah. 
We're this gonna, is a national crisis. We're gonna nuke Jabudon. <laughs> Louis had his own agenda of killing the beast, though. Just as with Duhamel, Louis was uh, embarrassed by the failure of the Seven Years' War. French prestige was floundering, especially with British newspapers printing satirical articles, ridiculing the monarch for being unable to handle something as simple as, quote, a mere wolf. Not to mention, there is growing tension between the monarch and his royal subjects. As you all know, these tensions would eventually boil over into the French Revolution, but that would be something for Louis XVI to deal with. Louis XV saw this as a chance to win back not only international prestige, but the faith of the countryside. So he sent out two professionals, the father and son dream team of Jean-Charles-Marc-Antoine Vesemel de uh, Deneval, dude has like six names, and his son, John Francis. <laughs> Between the two of them, they shared a reported 1,200 kill count of wolves. They had a very particular set of skills. Skills acquired over a very long career. Skills that made them a nightmare to wolves like the beast. They would look for it, they would find it, and they would kill it. They took control <laughs> <clears throat> They took control from Duel Mount and reignited the hunt. However, sadly, their efforts were no more successful than Duel Mount's. The large issue was their method. Upon receiving a report of an attack, they would ride out and stake out the area waiting for the beast to strike again. They hunted it with tactics tried and true in their trade, something that would kill any ordinary wolf. Yet the beast was far from ordinary, and often, often their ambushes ended with them receiving news that the beast had struck somewhere else, completely evading the hunters. Frustrated, Denevaugh and his son were dismissed. Louis had quite enough and broke out his secret weapon, a 71-year-old man. But as the saying goes, fear the man who grows old in a profession where men die young. This man was none other than Francis Antoine, personal gun bearer to the king and quite possibly the greatest sharpshooter in all of France. June 23rd, 1765, Antoine joined the hunt initially under the command of the Denevals before they were dismissed July 18th. He hit the ground running. July 6th, he was investigating the death of a cattle shepherd outside the uh, village of Brushels when he came to a startling discovery. There were two sets of wolf prints. The beast was in fact beasts, plural. Knowing that the beast had a mate and possibly even offspring, it became a race against the, against the clock to find and kill them before they could create a breeding population. If not, this issue could become permanent. Antoine quickly got to work. He sent letters requesting support from the local nobles for additional men and, more importantly, bloodhounds. On top of that, he went as far as to create a new form of ammunition known as wolfshot, a type of spread ammo that was heavier and deadlier. It had more pellets so that a single shot could actually launch 40 pellets. He also paid close attention to reports made by witnesses, most notably a young woman named Marie Janine Vallette. On August 11th, Marie was, was crossing the river de Gis with her sister when she looked to discover the beast immediately right behind her. In the river? Yep. 
Mary defended herself by using a homemade spear, consisting of a polearm with a bayonet attached. As the beast prepared to strike, she plunged the weapon into the creature's chest and left a bloody wound. The beast, gravely injured, panicked before fleeing. Antoine was impressed by Marie, assuring that she would be well rewarded for her efforts, and granting her the title, quote, the Maid of Jaboudon. A statue memorializing her feet was actually constructed in Avers Village in modern-day France, which you can still see today. Oh, I was going to ask if it was still there. Many people assumed Mary had felled the beast and were confident enough to forego their hunts in order to participate in a large mass, followed by a celebration on August 19th in the town of Bessier. Antoine, however, had his doubts and remained in the area just in case the creature returned. And it did on September 2nd, killing a 22-year-old woman in the town of Deej. The two weeks that followed uh, followed with fresh kills, two fresh kills. Disheartened, Antoine actually drew up a letter of resignation on September 16th. He had failed, just like all the others before him. Despite his vigilance, the beast had snatched up another handful of lives. Yet, he did not resign because that same day, he received a shipment of reinforcements in the form of 24 bloodhounds. Was this the first time they decided to use dogs? Yep. They had professional hunters. Yep. And none of these guys were like, no, we should get dogs. Or at least if they did, no one decided to mention it until now. Why well, Antoine like makes a point of it. To the point where he saw the arrival of these bloodhounds as a literal divine sign that he was meant to continue. His determination was rewarded because three days later he received news that the beast had been spotted in St. Julian de Sabas. Chase, Chase, sorry. Putting his newly acquired hounds to use, he managed to track it down to Polymer Woods on September 21st. Fanning out how they separate and waited patiently. Eventually, Antoine caught sight of it. A massive wolf prowling among the trees. Now was his chance. Slowly, Carefully, he leveled his rifle. Drawing a beat on the creature, he took a long inhale before squeezing the trigger. The shot thundered through the forest. Antoine was knocked to the ground by the kickback while the beast let out an agonized wail. Blood trickled from his torn up shoulder and one ruined eye. Yet, just as it had with Duhamel, the creature got back up. It's one good eye fixed on Antoine. It charged, moving too quickly for him to react. The thing would be upon him before he could even pull a knife, let alone ready another shot. And just as the fangs were nearly on him, there came another loud bang. A second ball tore through the creature's head and dropped it to the ground. Antoine looked up to see Rencard, his cousin and fellow hunter, standing over him with a smoking musket. The beast was dead. An investigation was performed to confirm that this was truly the beast and not just a regular wolf. Although no human remains were found when they cut up its stomach, it was positively identified by several witnesses, including Maui. The creature was unstuffed and personally presented to King Louis. However, in subsequent years, the taxidermy was lost. No idea how you lose something like that. Still, having learned his lesson, Antoine remained vigilant while the rest of his party celebrated their success. After all, their work was not yet done. This was only the father, the mother, and possibly their children remained out there. The day after, he immediately began the hunts again. 
October 4th, one of his men shot a wolf matching the beast's description. Antoine did not recover the body, but judging by how much blood it had lost, he figured it would soon die anyway. The very next day, the mother wolf was discovered in the same woods and was wounded. The pursuit continued until October 13th, where he was following a lead from a local prioress named Madame Yarine de Lugouc, uh, Lugac. I'm so sorry. Antoine and his men were once again, once again came across the female wolf and gave chase. The chase lasted nearly two hours before it came to a climactic end as the beast was slain by two gunshots. Four days later, Antoine would personally shoot and kill the last of the wolves, ending the crisis in Jeudon. Antoine returned to Versailles as a hero. Upon receiving his massive bounty for slaying the creature, Antoine decided instead to give the majority of it to the brave hunters who had accompanied him. Instead, he was awarded several rewards directly from the king himself, including a new coat of arms, proudly displaying the beast which he had slain. Finally, the matter was behind him, and the nation of France took a relieved breath. But as the patient, uh, peasants of Jabodon celebrated their salvation, Something dark stirred deep within the forest. Something vengeful, primal, and above all else, hungry. Just like Jason Voorhees or countless monsters of the silver screen, the beast refused to die. On December 3rd, it struck again. Was, it, was this the escaped pup who Antoine believed dead but did not recover, or is it possible that the beast was simply beyond death? Regardless, the slaughter began anew. Desperately, Lafont and other nobles petitioned the king to send Antoine back and finally put an end to the monster. Yet, as far as the king, king saw, the crisis was settled. The beast was dead, and whatever was causing his new string of deaths was simply an ordinary wolf, a matter that had to be resolved entirely by the local authorities themselves. And so the people of Jabudong were abandoned to the wrath of the beast, killing scores of them over the course of years. That was until one man put a stop to it. When the king refused to save his people, it fell to a homegrown hero to take matters into his own hands. One Jean Chastel. This man is a mystery. Little was known of him except that he was a farmer and an innkeeper from mont -Bouchette. As the beast was ravaging the countryside, Jean himself was actually in jail. There are two accounts as to why. One saying that he was imprisoned after leading a hunting party into a bog and thus losing the beast, while the second says he is arrested for refusing to, jump to join the hunts altogether. Yet, Jean was no coward. He was an experienced hunter and very good with a rifle. He had a deeper reason for wishing not to pursue the beast fearing that there was something far, far deadlier than any mere wolf. That the beast was something truly unearthly. However, he faced an ultimatum, stay in prison or join the hunt. Choosing the latter, he was released and immediately began the search. On June 19th, 1767. So this thing's been out pretty much unchallenged for almost two years. He found the creature within his local woods. According to legend, he heard the beast's hideous breath as he was praying. Believing that only God's grace could deliver him, Jean remained still and finished his prayer. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Then he opened his eyes to see those of the beast. Jean slowly rose to his feet and placed his bullet, one supposedly made of silver, into his musket. On earth as it is in heaven, the beast flashed its fangs and began to sprint. Amen, he whispered, just before the loud crack of a rifle shot shattered the silence of the forest. In a moment, the beast lay dead before him. In the end, three years had passed, and with it, many lives too. The most conservative estimate places the victims at 88. Why, some say 300, and go as far as to say 500 people were killed by the beast. But in the end, it was finally over. Today, Jabodon has since been renamed Lazir after the French Revolution. Yet, as names change, the story remains. A plaque to remember Jean Chastel's victory can be found in Le Bacille Saint Mary. However, just as the legacy of the beast lingers on, so too does its final mystery still puzzle scholars and investigators today. That brings us to a question almost elusive as the beast itself. What was the beast of Javudon? The obvious answer is that the beast was simply an abnormally large wolf. Wolves are known to attack humans commonly back then. Scholars estimate that wolves were responsible for up to 8,000 deaths in France from the 17th to 18th centuries. This leads some to argue that the beast attacks were a string of unrelated wolf attacks attributed to a single creature and blown out of proportion by the media. However, I did find an article from National Geographic that presents some counterpoints. Namely, the beast attacked a very different demographic of victims. Wolves typically kill people under the age of 10, while the beast attacked people significantly older than that, causing some scientists to believe it was a larger predator with a need for more protein and calories. Another theory is that the beast was an exotic animal, perhaps a hybrid sired by this is the conclusion reached by Duhamel himself, who wrote in one of his letters, you'll undoubtedly think, like I do, that this is a monster, quote, hybrid, the father of which is a lion. What its mother was remains to be seen, end quote. However, others do believe it could, be, it could have been a hyena, based on how it's described having a large black stripe. On top of that, witnesses describe the beast as kneeing like a horse, which could be their attempt at describing a hyena's life. Now, you might be wondering, how would an exotic animal end up in France to begin with? And the answer would be menageries, large private zoos popular with French nobles. If a creature managed to escape from one, it would find untapped wilderness with almost no natural predators. However, our more open-minded viewers may be inclined to agree with the explanation put forth by Jean Chastel, that the beast was more than an exotic animal or a wolf. No, he believed it was something truly supernatural, a werewolf. This would explain quite a bit about the beast, such as its increased bloodlust and its ability to tank multiple shots from hunters. Now you might say, but Harmon, werewolves only change during a full moon while the beast attacked at all hours and on any day. To which I would say, one, don't interrupt, it's very rude. <laughs> And two, the full moon only applies to some werewolves. Not 
Wolfman. And yes, there is a difference. And that <laughs> the difference is that werewolves cannot control their transformations, while wolfmen can change at will. In myth, these wolfmen are typically granted their bestial powers by an evil force, such as the devil! Melissa, you look like you're about to explode. So just say <laughs> what you want to say. I can think of most. Because they weren't werewolves, they were they were shapeshifters. They could do it on They're command. They were furries. Yeah. Um, they could do it on command, but still in that like universe, they were the children of the men who are traditional, like changing out of the form of the werewolves. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Brad. I, you. I was like rocking back and forth in my chair. For those at home, uh, Alyssa looked like she was going to explode. <laughs> An example of this can be found in 1521 with two French murderers, Pierre Bougard and Michel Verdun, who confessed to murdering a number of children in the guise of wolves. They claimed that, really, that they received this power by a magical ointment given to them by Satan. Both were subsequently burned at the stake. One thing to note is that Jean Castile supposedly used a silver bullet in what was one of the few times in which the beast was killed by a single shot. However, one would be wise to remember that the beast seemed to target exclusively humans. And what greater predator does man have than man itself? That brings us to our next theory. What if the beast of Jabudon was really the work of serial killers? That's why, oh my god, that's why I wrote down, I said maybe it was human. Yeah. Now, that would explain how the beast was able to avoid the hunts. They're looking for a wolf when the beast was already among them. A mogus joke. Further evidence of this theory can be found in the fact that the method of killing did not always seem to line up with that of a wolf. Yes, wolves will target the throat first, but consider how several victims were found headless. It could be possible that the killer took them as trophies. The connection between werewolves and serial killers has been drawn many times with some believing that the werewolf myth originated as a means of explaining seemingly normal men suddenly becoming bloodthirsty monsters. Consider the case of Giles Guenier, a French serial killer who was arrested in 1573 after killing and consuming four young boys. His most gruesome crime was tearing a small child in half by eating through his midriff. It is worth noting that his murders were carried out without weapons, as he only used his hands and teeth. Uh, Another one to consider is the case of Fritz Harman. Haha, <laughs> that's unfortunate. A German serial killer who ironically earned himself the nickname the Wolfman. This grim moniker was in reference to his preferred method of killing, biting straight through the throats of his 24 to 27 victims. Guess what he was executed with in 1924? The guillotine! As tempting as the serial killer explanation is, it doesn't line up with the witness statements describing a large animal attacking them. And it is worth noting that the beast was seen all over Jabudon. One note that I did want to end on is that these theories are not mutually exclusive. The beast's attacks were scattered across such a vast area that it could actually be the combined efforts of all of these theories. 
a few victims over here killed by a wolf man, some over here by an escaped lion, and a couple snuck in by the opportunistic serial killer. But with all these explana explanations given, all that remains is the simple question. Do you believe in the beasts of Jabudon? What do you think? I am the worst person to ask. <laughs> what do you think, Armin? Uh, I believe in the wolf, uh, beast of Jabudon, and I don't think it was a werewolf. And I lean more towards the hyena explanation, but if I had to give like a cool, sexy answer, I would say it might be a serial killer because that's like the badass answer. There's even one theory that the Beast of Jabudon was Jean Castile, who trained a dog to murder people for him. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> I'm going to lean towards um, something a little bit different. Now, you say aliens, that will roundhouse kick you. Why would I say aliens? Because everyone this says This is France. Aliens. No one. This is France, man. If I was an alien, you think I was going to land in France in the 1700s? No. Absolutely <laughs> not. I'm smarter than that. No. Um, we talked about it potentially being animals, potentially being, you know, some exotic import. I want to toss the Tasmanian wolf into the mix. Ooh. They're about the same size as a regular, like, they call them Italian wolves. It's the type that lived in that area. They're not gray wolves like we have here. And the only reason I know this is because I'm actually doing a research project for college right now on Yeah, wolves. It's, it's like wolves with, like, pasta, right? Yeah, kind of. Okay, cool. Yeah, pasta wolves. But they're about the same size as a Italian wolf. They have black stripes down their backs, just like what we talked about. They're already reddish in color. They have a very distinct... Um, like design for their mouth and snout and they do look a lot different than a normal wolf mostly because they're you know from fucking Australia so you've got to account for the fact that it's basically a goddamn hyena German shepherd love child with a kangaroo tail and six claws on each foot ready to send some French peasant down under oh absolutely incredibly incredibly aggressive Responsible for the extinction of as many as 5,000 species in Australia alone. And they were officially declared distinct only back in 1930. And they were very widespread in zoos, menageries, and circuses. And Looney Tunes. And Looney Tunes. No. That was a Tasmanian devil. It's a different oh, I'm completely different creature. Thing. No, um, let me... <laughs> Harvard's brain dead. Um... <laughs> Hey, isn't this the time when Australia is being turned to a penal colony mm -hmm. anyway? So, you know, it's possible it could have sent it. The last ones that they had in captivity were bred a lot smaller because, you know, captivity. That's what they looked like before extinction in 1930. Oh, it's got the black stripes. Mm -hmm. But they used to be rumored to be the size of around, like, a small mastiff. But by the time they officially were extinct they were about the size of a red fox so at this point in time in the 1700s it very easily could have been a full-sized non-human interfered tasmanian wolf may i throw out an idea a little conspiracy theory so i mentioned how the british were using this as a chance to humiliate the french right are you saying that the british did this 
what if it was one psyop? Like they sent like a special forces wolf to go wreak havoc on the French countryside. They're like, gee, by golly, special force, by special forces wolf, he literally means Queen Elizabeth in a furry costume, ripping people open barehanded. In the 17th century? Absolutely, she's old as fuck. And when it fled back to England, it would become Jack the Ripper. So are we now assuming that the Queen of England was also Jack the Ripper? Because I like where this is going. I would like I'm to... on to you, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to formally apologize on the behalf of Strange History. Um... <laughs> but not the cryptic code. The cryptic code apologizes for nothing. Um, uh, to France and to England and to the Catholic Church. You know what? I take that last one back. <laughs> so what do you think, Alyssa? I... We both went. It's time to make a decision. Um, no thoughts, head empty. Um, I don't know. I was kind of in the lane of it could be a person, but I kind of like how you ended it with it could have been a person and this and that. So I think it would be a... a if I had to give a final answer, a mix of like regular wolf attacks, a person who definitely took advantage of the situation because what serial killer wouldn't, and what Brad said with the Tasmanian wolf or tiger or whatever it is. No werewolf? No werewolf. Ah, darn. I'm sorry. So we don't think the Beast of Jabodon was anything paranormal? I, I don't think so. Just wolves and the furries that love them? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know how to end this episode, but that's everything I had. Uh, thank you for letting me come on to the show, by the way. Absolutely, my well, friend. For leaving your door open. Yeah. Thanks for that. This is our mid-ish season episode because we're this is episode six of season two. We're gonna do six more, and then episode thirteen, just like season one, is another special. And you already peaked with the harm, Meister. <laughs> we can't we can't top this. <laughs> Be sure to stay tuned after our outro to hear about our friend Steph over on the podcast Creepy Vibes Only. Today is March 18th, um, and a couple things happened, not a whole lot of like really, I mean, some of them are big, I guess, but. Uh, so in 1906, the first monoplane took flight for over 40 feet, uh, invented by a Romanian named Trajan. Yeah, I know that's wrong. I'm sorry. In 1940, Hitler and Mussolini met up and Brenner passed, and that's when Mussolini agreed to join Hitler's side in due time, is what he said. 1965, Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov became the first person to walk in space for 12 whole minutes. I'd be terrified. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he had a good time. In 1970, Dana Elaine Owens was born. Who's that? Queen Latifah. Ooh. <laughs> um, and then lastly, in 1990, the largest art robbery in U.S. history occurred. Two men pretended to be police officers as they broke into the Isabella Stort Gardner Museum in Boston. They stole 13 works of art, including things from Rembrandt and Johannes Vermeer. This totaled over $500 million, and those artworks were never returned. 
And see, this is things you'll only learn on this podcast because I had no idea that that was even a thing. <laughs> Almost within my lifetime. It was a. It was the beast. It was the beast. Yep. It, it was the beast. Mm-hmm. Two men pretending to be police officers? Sounds like the beast in a trench coat to me. It was the beast pretending to be a man pretending to be a police officer. There you go. <laughs> pretending to be two police officers. Yeah. It was the beast in his mate. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or her mate. You're right. <laughs> Maybe the beast is like a platypus and uh, reproduces asexually. We never know. I didn't have that in the theories. <laughs> Well, you do now! And that was today in history. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Strange History. Be sure to check out Harmon and his friends over on their podcast, The Cryptid Code, so you can hear all about the horrors and hoaxes that lie between science and superstition. And follow their Twitter, too. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at Strange for History for all the latest updates. You can also follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, or pretty much wherever your ears are listening. And of course, always enjoy the strange, weird things that make us, us. Hello, lovely humans. Steph here from Creepy Vibes Only, a comedy and horror podcast that covers nothing but the creepiest subjects. Tune in every Monday to get your dose of creepy for the week. Available on all major listening platforms and YouTube. See you soon.